0: Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life, you know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek
1: justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+.
0: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers. To hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions change their careers, what relationships influenced their work. A recent New Yorker magazine article told the story of Chanel Jackson. In 1998, an Alabama jury found Jackson guilty of murder. All 12 jurors voted against sending him to the electric chair. But Alabama is one of three states where a judge can override the jury's decision. And the judge, who was up for re-election that year, did just that. Chanel Jackson was sentenced to death. Eventually, Jackson acquired a new lawyer, Brian Stevenson, who is my guest today. Stevenson is founder and director of the Equal Justice Initiative... An Alabama-based nonprofit that fights for retrials, death sentence reversals, and exonerations. Stevenson is a fierce opponent of judicial override and works against a penalty system he says is defined by error, bias, and unreliability
3: our sentences for virtually every offense are way, way out of control. It's not just the death penalty and life without parole. It's 10 years for simple possession of marijuana. It's, you know, 15 years for writing a bad check. It's all of that stuff. And I absolutely believe that people saw what I saw. They could not be comfortable. They could not be silent. They could not continue doing what they're doing without having to do something. I don't think there's been a time in, our, in American history where there are more innocent people in jails and prisons than right now. You know, we have this tremendous prison increase, uh, 300,000 people in 1972, 2.3 million today. There's no way to avoid the fact that whatever the proportion of innocent people that are being wrongly convicted, and it's high. Because of this increase in the number of people being sent to prison, we've never had as many innocent people in jails and prisons than we have today. And people read about innocent people getting out for the first time, uh, the Innocence Project and DNA yeah, is done some check. really important work, all of those folks. But it's a fraction of the innocent population. They're dealing with just that small, very small group of people whose crimes allow for biological evidence that can be tested, right. which will exonerate them. That's a 2 percent right. of the innocent population, and it will haunt you. I've been representing a man named Anthony Ray Hinton. So describe this case. So this is a case of a man who, in 1985, was accused of two different murders. There were three fast food robberies in Birmingham, and the police couldn't figure out who did it. Uh, They collected the bullets. They thought that the bullets might have been fired from the same weapon. In the third crime, the witness didn't die. uh, The uh, victim didn't die, and he went through a a photo lineup, and he picked out this guy, Anthony Ray Hinton, who had no prior history of violent crimes. So they go to his mother's house. They find an old gun. And they test the gun. They say, well, this is the gun that produced all these bullets. And based on that, they charge him with all of the murders. He goes to trial. He says, wait a minute. I have a lock solid alibi. I was 15 miles away in a warehouse at the time of this third crime. And there's 20 people who can confirm that he was there. But now they're locked in to him. So they're not going to kind of be dissuaded by that. They put on their experts who say, yeah, this is the gun that fired all of these bullets because he's poor. He didn't have any money for a, a good weapons expert, so his lawyer had to get a civil engineer who would never testified in this kind of case, who was blind in one eye, who couldn't actually Perfect. turn on the machine, yeah. who was literally laughed off the stand, convicted, sentenced to death. He's been on death row for 28 years. Fifteen years ago, we get involved. We get the best experts in the country. They all say, no way in the world this gun produced these and bullets. And what happened? Well, the state says, well, we're not going to back down. And they says, well, we don't have an answer to what these experts are saying, but we've got a conviction and a death sentence, and we're just going to run with that. Right. And every court- And it's
0: more expedient
3: for them, and, and, that's right. and it's more- Yeah, and uh, political. Effecti- yeah. And politically but, effective. Because, because if they have to say, oh, you know what, we made a mistake, then people start to ask questions. Because in
0: the article, in the Chanel Jackson case, you read about how- All these judges who are running for office and we're getting contributions from prosecutors who are trying cases before them, everybody toughens up about the law. They they almost act in
3: a different way when election time comes. Absolutely. We have elected judges. They run as partisan in partisan elections. You run as a Democrat or a Republican and you campaign on your toughness. And so to actually acknowledge that there's a problem with the death penalty suggests that the death penalty isn't 100 percent reliable it creates a political vulnerability. We've been litigating for 15 years. So just last year, February, we got the United States Supreme Court to overturn uh, the conviction and I'm now kind of each day trying to get this man out of prison, but it wakes me up at night. It it just so burdens me. And the thing, I just went to see this client last week, it's Mr. Hinton. It's a stain. It's a stain. 28 years it's a stain. The, you know, And this he's
0: a remarkable person. When, when, when also knowing that by admitting they were wrong, how much they would win. Yeah, absolutely. Because you wind up having the purity yes. and the dignity yes. of the office yes. elevated by them saying they're going, you know, sometimes we make Merc- mistakes I, and we're really sorry. I've made
3: that argument. I'd to, rather, we, let's give this guy a couple of million bucks to live his life in the remaining years of his life. And at this point, we would just take freedom. But I've made that argument to every attorney general since 1998. I said, look, if you said. Did you almost
0: gain any ground with any of them? Were some of them close? Mm, they were all the same
3: they all acted at the first conversation like oh yeah that's a good point but when they thought about it more and they got into that political context they all retreated but I've said to each of them if you say uh, we've evaluated this case and we've concluded that this one is innocent you gain credibility your ability to right. kind of do this stuff is actually enhanced but they can't even do that and so, yes, that will haunt you. Is All there, of something, these about, is there something
0: about the DNA,
3: no pun intended, of the prosecutors Well, that I they do. can't when well, they made a mistake? Well, I do. I think throughout our country, we've been right. acculturated into believing that you never back down. You right. never admit never mistake. You made a mistake. Absolutely. And I think, actually, as a country, that's our biggest problem. Uh, we have become Prideful. unwilling— to acknowledge that we make mistakes. Well, all we do is tell people around the world how great we are. That's right. And that arrogance actually sets us up for the it's kinds terrible. of conflicts that then follow. It's terrible. You know, this whole work we're doing on race and poverty is actually rooted at trying to persuade America that actually we need to just own up to all of the terrible things sure. we've done and have a conversation about it. Be truthful have a, have about Have an it.
0: almost South African reconciliation.
3: Absolutely. That's what we're trying to do. Actually, we've been doing this stuff on slavery. We're about to issue this report on lynching, which dominated from the uh, end of Reconstruction until World War II. My whole view is that, you know, If you come to the South, we like to romanticize uh, the mid-19th century. We put up all these Confederate monuments and memorials. And the truth of it is, in America, uh, we weren't a society with slavery. We became a slave society. We actually created a myth, an ideology that allowed slavery to be defensible. Uh, These people of color are different. They're not as smart. They don't work as hard, blah, blah, blah. And the 13th Amendment didn't do anything to address that myth. And in that respect, slavery didn't end. It evolved. It turned into something else. And we had decades of terrorism. And these older people come up to me because they get angry when people start talking about 9-11 as the first time we're dealing with terrorism because they feel uh, implicated by that. They say we grew up with terrorism. We had to worry about being lynched and bombed and threatened. And that legacy— It's
0: not terrorism if it's against someone else. That's exactly
3: right. Right. And that legacy— What
0: we're doing in other countries isn't
3: terrorism. Oh, right. Exactly. And we haven't actually recognized our capacity— to actually engage in terrorism. And
0: I want to be very careful. I've learned to be uh,
3: hyper careful about these things because if this
0: goes out over the air, I don't want people to misread. I'm not saying every act of the U.S. military and the soldiers is an act of terrorism. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just saying there are things that resemble terrorism. Oh, absolutely. And I never blame the soldiers. I'm saying that the the government has ordered done. Well,
3: it's just our attention to where the lines are, if we're thinking about where the lines are and recognizing that we can go past those lines if we're not paying attention to those lines. That's all we're trying to talk about here. And there's no question that lynchings were terrorism. Public spectacle lynchings in the 1900s, and the early part of the uh, 20th century, were terrorism. And they sent thousands, millions of African Americans into communities like New York and Boston and Chicago and Detroit and Oakland and Los Angeles, not as people looking for opportunities, but as exiles and refugees from terror. Right. And that legacy of being terrorized by people, oh, I absolutely do, shaped the way these communities emerged. And we never kind of talked about it. You couldn't get Congress to actually pass an anti-lynching law because the Southerners were saying, no, we will not back down from this. And even during the civil rights movement, and this is part of where I get in trouble because I'm a little provoked by how all we want to do when we talk about the 1940s and 50s and 60s is celebrate the civil rights movement to celebrate the progress that we made. And And freeze it there. And freeze it there. And and, and everybody gets to celebrate. There are no qualifying questions that you have to answer before you get to participate. And we've reduced it almost to this kind of three-day event where Rosa Parks gives up her seat on the first day. Dr. King leads a march on Washington on the second day. And then we pass all these laws on the third day. And it provokes me because we're ignoring the decades of damage that we did to everybody, by humiliating people of color every day of their lives. I grew up in a community where I saw my parents humiliated every day of their life. The damage where? we did in southern Delaware, on the eastern shore, uh, where the movie theaters were segregated, where the schools were segregated. I started my education. what did you see? Well, I started my education in a colored school. I would drive past the Milton Public School and see all the white kids going to this big, beautiful brick building. And then we would go into this shack Uh, And I would go to the beach where the best parts of the beach we couldn't go to because they were racially segregated. I didn't like movies when I was a kid growing up. In the 60s. In the 60s, yeah. I didn't like movies because you had to sit in the balcony. It was such a humiliating experience. And then after integration with the schools, I'd see my friends, but I couldn't be with them in some of these other spaces until there was complete desegregation, and it hurt. I used to get mad at my parents for not taking me to town because we lived out in the country. There was nothing to do, but they didn't want me to go with them in town because they didn't want me to see them humiliated by any white person that they encountered, and it accumulates these injuries this burden, this problem, and we haven't talked about it. And even for white people, a generation of whom were taught that they are better than other people because of their skin color, we haven't helped them recover from that lie because we just tried to play it off. And we needed truth and reconciliation after 1968, and we didn't do it. And because of that, we've now set ourselves up for the conflicts and controversies that we're still experiencing, uh, where the police are the face of this racial order, and this presumption of guilt haunts us and follows all these young people. Of color. The Bureau of Justice is now reporting that one in three black male babies born in the twenty-first century is expected to go to jail sure. or prison. Yeah. That wasn't true in the twentieth century. Right. Wasn't know. true in the nineteenth century. It became true in the twenty-first century. only getting worse. Right. It's only so getting worse, and Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because we've never confronted this presumption of guilt, which is a but it result can't only of. Be that. Well, I think it's a result of this racial narrative that has existed for so long that we're not actually proactively trying to do the. Things. So, were many people who, in, in, in first of all, I'm going to
0: use some phrases I'm not really comfortable with because when you hear people say. Let's continue the conversation, mm. and let's be part of the. Con- it makes me want to vomit because of I- I'm sick of conversation. We've had yeah. quite a bit too, too much a- conversation. Uh, no, we totally need more action. But, a- but, but my my point is to to borrow those words. You know, in the conversation, if you will, a lot of people are sitting there saying, "Let's let's take race out of this now." You, mm. If you if you notice mm-hmm. that they're like, my criticisms of Obama have nothing to do with race, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but but you come roaring in mm-hmm. with, 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 the, mm-hmm. with the racial question. You,
3: you can't. It is a defining feature of American life. It has so kind of compromised and but contaminated. Do you change,
0: but, but do you think it's changed? And I'll tell you, tell you why. To me, America was always the big table.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: There was bounty at the table and there were jobs and this is a metaphor for the jobs and the money and the housing and the lifestyle and the cars and the vacations. And over the last 50 years, there's less seats at the table. Mm-hmm. Now, there's still more seats at this Table, mm-hmm. and it's still a great table. Yeah. That the trick became, in order to keep the critical mass of Americans satisfied, we had to make sure that a lot of people didn't even get near the table. That's right. And I think and it's that, about economics. It's not about race. Well, I, I believe I, that racism mm-hmm. has has metastasized mm-hmm. into really what is an economic question. Mm-hmm. We, we, we're going to use color as an excuse to keep you off the playing field and mm-hmm. keep you from competing because there's not enough at the seats at the table anymore.
3: Well, I don't think we can separate race and economics. I mean, the slavery was about the economic viability of this new generation of people would come to this great land and how to make it profitable. And we got people enslaved here, not because we thought we were doing something proactive to help Africans, but because we had these economic needs. We had these labor needs. And the same is true in post-Reconstruction. You know, convict leasing and Jim Crow and all of these institutions were about helping people stay profitable, helping them stay secure. And even the 1940s and 50s and 60s, it had these social features, but there were real economic tensions there. So I think for people of color and poor people, they were always in another room too. When we talk about that table, we let some people of color get in there. Enough to take uh, the st- to let some steam out of uh, the Exactly. Mouth. But it's yeah. always been this we'll thing. We let a couple senators uh, in there. Uh, absolutely. A couple
0: of CEOs there. But, but, my, but to get back to this point I'm making, and that is that I believe that there's two hierarchies here. One is people in power politically. Mm-hmm. And then there's the uh, um, the power of the masses of people who... I mean, to me, my daughter, my eldest daughter, has grown up since 1990 mm-hmm. in a wash in tolerance mm-hmm. and cultural equality. Mm-hmm. These are kids who they know. The name of Kanye West's baby, mm. and they don't know who their senator is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A- and a celebration of all things black in culture, fashion, yeah. they worship Beyonce. Sure, sure. They are completely colorblind. Yeah. Black, white, music, sports, yeah. culture, what have you. They worship and they don't, and they don't see that. And yet, still, more black people are going to prison.
3: Well, that's right. Where's that disconnect? Well, I think it's because it's become culturally complicated, but I don't think the fundamentals have really changed. I go to a gym in Alabama. Well, I see these young guys, firefighters, police officers. I used to go to different – I mean, it's a different gym. I don't go to that gym anymore. But these young white guys who are listening to rap artists, they're listening to Kanye, they're listening to Beyonce. But they have Confederate Mar- American tattoos. I didn't, yeah, and when that's they enforce – when they work as police officers and they see young black men, they presume they're guilty. They presume they're dangerous. They presume they that they're up to them. something. Yeah. And they target them and they victimize them at the same time that they are persuaded that they couldn't possibly be racially biased because they like Kanye and they like Beyonce. And that cultural narrative has always existed, right? People would go to the movies in the first half of the century and watch black performers act in roles that comforted them and feel like that somehow made them beyond race. But in truth, they bought into the same narrative of racial difference. They bought into the same idea that these uh, these barriers that kind of are 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 really condemning and condemn and and har- you know just really disrupting the lives of the poor and people of color didn't have any implications for them they didn't have to apologize for anything and i think that reality is still there, And, you know, you don't have to be an overt rate. You don't have to be bad. You can have all of these other things. You can even have good black friends and all this stuff. I'll tell you a story. I was in a courtroom in the Midwest uh, just not not too long ago. What kind of case? It was, a, it was actually a juvenile case, and it was the first time I'd gone there. I was representing a young kid. Uh, a young white kid. If you don't mind my asking, when you say you're representing someone, how do they get you? Yeah. How does someone now—Ryan
0: <laughs> Stevenson 20 years ago was different. You, uh, yeah. could, you, could, you could ring him up on the phone.
3: <laughs> how do they get you to show up and represent well, him now? How does that work? We, uh, we get hundreds of requests That's like getting help. Billy Joel to play at your wedding. <laughs> how does that happen? Well, we get hundreds of requests each week, and we only represent a small portion of the people. But when we have a campaign, like when we were doing the juvenile work trying to get the court to end life without parole sentences for kids— we were taking those cases, and I took. I want to stay active. I'm, I like being an active lawyer, so I took, you know, a small set of those, and I would go to courts. I went to South Dakota. I went to these states: Iowa, Indiana, to do these hearings. I always have cases that I'm working on directly personally, even though they're a much smaller subset than than the people who request us. But I was in this courtroom in the Midwest, just getting ready for the hearing. Had my suit on. Had my shirt on. Had my tie. I'm sitting at defense counsel's table. The judge walks in, and he sees me sitting at defense counsel's table, followed by the prosecutor. And he looks over at me, and he says, hey, 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 you get out of here. I don't want any defendants sitting in my courtroom without their lawyers. You go back out there in the hallway and wait until your lawyer gets here. And I stood up, and I said, oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I didn't introduce myself. My name is Brian Stevenson. I am the lawyer. And the judge starts laughing and the prosecutor starts laughing. And I make myself laugh, too, because I don't want to disadvantage my client. I'm laughing because I'm horrified. It's horrifying, right? Then the client comes. And again, this young white kid, we do the hearing. But afterward, I'm sitting in my car and I thought to myself, what is it about this judge that when he sees a middle-aged black man in a suit sitting at defense counsel's table, he can't imagine that that's the lawyer? And is that going to manifest? Was it ever brought up again? Uh, No. What state was that in? This was actually in Iowa judge wasn't a bad guy. We actually had a good outcome. But it's the way— What was, was the outcome? Well, we got the client uh, a reduced sentence. He was one of the people uh, who didn't end up with life without parole. Uh, but it's the was way— Was it ever mentioned again? No. Nope. When the whole thing was over? Did the nope. judge walk up to you nope. and nope. 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 shake nope. your hand for any kind of a even implied apology? I don't even think he worried about it. It was just to him wasn't funny. even aware. No, it was just funny, you know. And the truth of it is, though, when that judge is imposing sentences on young defendants of color— Their race is shaping his comfort level with putting them in prison forever. It's impacting the way he thinks about their guilt and the propriety of these very harsh sentences. And he can go home and go have dinner with some nice African-American woman or man, and he can listen to this music. But that narrative has not—we have to do something proactive to actually shield ourselves from acting on these biases that have been going on for decades. You can bet that Stevenson, who was currently a law
0: professor at New York University, is educating his students on this particular bias. If you want to learn more about the prison system in the United States, take a listen to my conversation with Martin Horn, former New York City Commissioner of Correction and Probation. He recommends big changes for our society. I would legalize drugs across the board. You would re- legalize uh, which after, drugs? After, all of them. You would legalize all drugs? Yes. I would sell it in the liquor stores. Right. And I would tax the hell out of right. it. Right. Find Martin Horn in the archives at
1: heresthething.org.
0: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest is Brian Stevenson, who has argued six cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. In 2012, Stevenson gave a TED Talk. He cited his grandmother as a big influence. He told a story of how one day, when he was nine, she took him aside and told him he wasn't like the other grandkids. He was special. She told him not to repeat their conversation and made him vow never to drink beer. When he was 14, his older brother offered him a beer and Brian remembered
3: his promise. I I said, no, I don't feel right about that. Y'all go ahead, y'all go ahead. And then my brother started staring at me. He said, what is, what's wrong with you? Have some beer. Then he looked at me real hard. He said, oh, I hope you're not still hung up on that conversation mama had with you. (laughs) I, I, I said, well, what are you talking about? He says, oh, mama tells all the grandkids that they're special.
0: Brian stuck with his grandmother. He still has never had a single drink. His TED Talk has over 2 million views, and in the week after he gave it, TED and the attendees of the talk pledged over $1 million to Stevenson's organization, the Equal Justice Initiative. As a young kid growing up in rural Delaware, Stevenson had no clue
3: that any of this awaited him. I don't even have an awareness of what's possible for me. I'm just trying to get into school. No. What kind of work did your dad do? Well, my dad was working in a food factory, you know. How um, many siblings? I had two siblings, an old, a brother uh, 13 months older and a sister 11 months younger. You know, we're just all crammed into this little space. I lived in this really poor rural section, chickens and pigs. People have outhouses. You know, we used to like using the outhouse because we thought it was cool. You it's got privacy. Your... Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's at least adventure. Something, yeah. <laughs> you know, you got your water from a well, and we were just trying to find a way to kind of be seen. You know, so I went. I, played, so I was a musician playing in the church, lots of time in church, because it was the one place where you could say things. You could actually speak in front of a group of people. You could be heard. There was this identity that you could have there that you couldn't have in town, where you had to be small and invisible. Uh, my grandmother was actually the daughter of people who were enslaved, Her parents were born in Virginia in the 1840s. She was born in the 1880s. And because her father learned to read quietly, silently— at the age of 12, and had to keep it a secret, he talked about slavery all the time with her. And she talked about it all the time with me. And so there was this kind of dual thing. And she kept saying, I need you to be smart. If you learn things, you can survive in ways that you can survive if you don't learn things. And so I became somebody interested in the world outside of my world. Because my grandmother, the daughter of slaves, I told me that was, talk. Impo- yeah, it was a saw the TED You t- don't drink. A, yeah, that's right. That, she yeah. had a powerful influence on sure. me. Uh, but that was my kind of beginnings. So we desperately wanted to go to the public school. In fact, my mom was this kind of person who she would always answer any question you asked her. And if I said, Mom, what's that bright star in the sky tonight? She said, well, that's the star that's close to the moon. She wouldn't know the name of the planet or anything, like. but she'd always want you to feel like your questions had good answers. The one time I remembered her not answering my questions when we would drive past the Milton Public School and I'd say, Mom, what does the word public mean? And she'd bite her lip because she didn't want me to know I ought to be able to go in there. And that reality was very— She didn't hurt. want you to be hurt. No, she didn't. And when we got to this school, it was all this kind of conflict. But eventually, things settled down. And I just was so struck by the expectations of poor performance that I encountered. The council counselor said, oh, you, we're going to send you to Votech. We're going to put you in the low section of this grade. And I had been doing reading Dr. Seuss. My mom was one of these people who bought books for us, even though we couldn't afford them. But I felt like I was ready, and I, I was— Provoked by it, so I wanted to prove people. No, I can do so this. So what happened? Well, I did really well because I was motivated. But when you're in
0: the when you're in the environment you're in, when did you realize quote unquote you had it? Well, I, you know, eventually
3: because my mom and what sister, are we going to do about Brian? Yeah, exactly. I got put in the kind of the. Part of third, and fourth, and fifth track. Grade. Yeah, the advanced track. It was the only black kid in there, one or two of us. How was that? It was challenging. Were you learning even then how to be that absolutely. guy that, from the, from that year? Uh, absolutely. How old were you? I was, what, eight, nine, so ten? and you're the other. <laughs> yeah, but you know, when it was time for you to stand up and recite your multiplication tables, all that kind of stuff, I wanted to be strong. I wanted to come strong. Where did strong. you go to high school? I went to the same public high school, Cape and Lopin High School, and that point— And you nailed that. Well, yeah, because then, you know, I felt like I had been on top of it, so I was so doing— No turning back. Now. Yeah, that's and right. And where'd you go to college? So I went to Eastern College, which was a, a small private school. Uh, outside of Philadelphia, and that was a very different world because it was just beautiful. There were lakes and rivers and streams, and I was studying philosophy. And I'd go sit on these hillsides, thinking all these deep thoughts. But I was still right. doing the sports, and, and you weren't drinking, by the way. And I wasn't drinking. <laughs> and then philosophy, and, deep thoughts, that's no alcohol. Right. And that's how I end up. So then, when I'm a senior, somebody says, "Well, what are you going to do after you graduate?" And that's when I realized for the first time, nobody's going to pay me to philosophize when right. I graduate. Right. And I start it's frantically. A yeah. So I start looking, and I realize you can't do graduate work in history or political science unless you know something about history. So what would you do? I found law school. Because
0: the truth and is— And where would you go to law school?
3: I went to Harvard Law and School. And how did that happen? Well, because you didn't have to know anything to go to law school. That was really my thinking. And well, that was the you one thing that appealed pottery, to me. You but if you passed the test. Yeah, exactly. And so I ended up there. But I hated it my first year. Why? They were talking about torts and contracts, and they weren't talking about race. They weren't talking about poverty. They weren't even talking about justice. So this
0: race thing just keeps gnawing at you. Well, this even inequality in thing.
3: I felt like, well, law means we can confront injustice. Was there racism at Harvard? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was at you know, 1981. Um, and how did you experience racism? Well, actually, it was actually in Boston. I was, you know, I'd never been up there. And I was, my first weekend there, I was walking in downtown Boston. And a truck drove by me and said – and I th- the guy said – he asked me a question. He said, where's Roxbury? I didn't understand what he was asking. And he said, where's Roxbury? And I kept getting closer to him. When I got close to him, he said, go back to Roxbury, nigger. That was the first weekend I okay. was there. Now, what about in on the Harvard campus itself or in the classrooms? Uh, you know, Harvard? I was fairly insulated. In the classroom, I was just trying to keep up. I didn't experience the kind of racial tensions that, that I'd seen as a young kid. It wasn't that kind of – there were no people of color on the faculty. I had no black law professors, Uh, but it was – and it was difficult to have the conversations that I was interested in having. So, I left after my first year and went to the school of government, the Kennedy School, thinking, well, this will be a more appropriate forum for me to talk about poverty and race and inequality. And it was worse. They were teaching us to maximize benefits and minimize costs, and it didn't seem to matter whose benefits got maximized and whose costs got minimized. And so, I left there and went back, and that's when I had this experience of going to the Deep South – and working with this human rights organization, providing legal services to people on death row. Everything changed what, after what, that. what organization did you it was start called, with? It was called— it's So called you went it. right from Harvard to there? Yes. Right from Harvard to Alabama? Yeah, and I actually went there as a law student in the middle of my law school study— To do what? To work for a month with this, so this organization. as was a project you were it was a project, an internship uh, with the Southern Center for Human Rights, and that's the when The Southern I, Center for—that's in Birmingham? In Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, in Atlanta. And that's the first time I met somebody on death row, and it's that experience that changed everything. When I met this condemned person who was literally dying for legal help, was going to be executed because he couldn't find a lawyer. And to realize that even in my ignorance, even with my limited skills, that I could have an impact on the quality of his life and his chance of being alive and avoiding wrongful execution, it radicalized everything. Then when I got back to Harvard, it all mattered to me. I needed to understand civil procedure and criminal procedure and constitutional law. You couldn't keep me out of the law library because I needed to know— all the things I needed. You wanted all and the tur- bullets you could put in your Absolutely. Gun. That's exactly right. And then everything changed. And I left there and I went to that organization and worked there four years before we started this project. Four in years in Atlanta? Yeah. Why didn't you stay there? Because Alabama was really... Why did you go from Cambridge to Atlanta to (laughs) Alabama? Most people are kind of going the other Uh, way. Well, Alabama was in crisis. Uh, In 1989, 25% of the people executed in in America were executed in Alabama. There was no public defender. There were no institutions providing legal services. So I went over to start this project. no shame. No shame at all. No, people were exploiting the absence of these resources. And the goal was to start this project and then go back to Atlanta. But we couldn't find the people we needed to make the project succeed. And one year turned into 5, 5, 10, 10, 20, 20, 30, and here I am. Now, you're a grown man. You're an extremely successful,
0: very admired, smart guy. But at the same time, emotion mm. is a part of this work. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you know, you, how do you manage your feelings and how mm. do you manage your
3: emotions doing this kind of work? It must be tough. It is tough. What do you do? It, you know, I— It's I, painful. It, it is painful. I think you you just demand more. You keep fighting more. Um you know, you have to have different metrics for how you evaluate what you're doing. You know, I I, I tell this story a lot. It's a, it's a it's a guy taught me this. I was giving a talk in a church. Old guy in a wheelchair comes in. He's sitting in the back. He's staring at me. An older black man. And I finished my talk. All the kids seem fine, but this older black man is just staring at me the whole time I'm talking. He has this very angry look on his face. He's really distracting me. When the kids go, this man comes up to me in his wheelchair. He has a kid roll him up to me. And he gets up in my face and he says, "Do you know what you're doing?" And I look at him, I don't know how to respond, and and he says it again. He says, do you know what you're doing? And I step back and I start mumbling something. And then he says to me, he says, you're beating the drum for justice. And then he says, you keep beating the drum for justice. And it moved me. Mm -hmm. He grabbed me by my jacket, pulled me into his chair, and he turned his head. He says, let me show you something, young man. And he says, you see this cut I have down here on the bottom of my neck? He says, I got that cut in Greene County, Alabama, 1963, trying to register people to vote. Then he turned his head and he said, you see this scar I got behind my ear? He said, I got that scar during Freedom Summer, Philadelphia, Mississippi. He turned his head and he said, you see this dark spot? He said, I got that bruise during the Children's Crusade in Birmingham, Alabama. And then he looked at me. He says, people think I'm some old man in a wheelchair covered with cuts and bruises and scars. He said, I'm going to tell you something. He said, these aren't my cuts. These aren't my bruises. These aren't my scars. He said, these are my medals of honor. And that is in some ways the way we have to sometimes convert the pain Mm -hmm. into a cause. To victory. Into victory. And you begin to realize that if you can beat the drum for justice with whatever you have, in the face of that, there is a strengthening that comes with it. And then you feel empowered. You know, ultimately, I'm not there yet. I want to, when I kind of go out, say I became a free man because I resisted the things that I think bind us and and burden us and and enslave us and, and confine us and condemn us. And that's kind of, a, kind of a quest that makes you feel like, you know, I can keep doing this. And it's energizing in its own way. I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm going to give you my answer to this, sure. but I want you to give me yours first, which is if you could
0: pick... Not one, but among many, what would one be? What do you think we need to be doing now in this country? Or or even in the state of Alabama?
3: What thing do we need to do? I think we actually really need to concretize uh, the mistakes of the past in a very visible way. I think what's going on in Germany right now is really instructive. You go to Germany and you are forced to confront the legacy of the Holocaust. You can't spend time there without being confronted with that. I'd like that to happen in this country. We want to put up markers and monuments at every lynching site in America. Uh, we think the South should be cluttered uh, with reminders of what we did through enslavement. I think the civil rights narrative needs to change. We need to start talking about all the ways in which white people have resisted this. What percentage of the legislature in, uh, in Alabama is black? A very small percentage, and they have no power. What uh, percentage of the population is black? 27%. And no person of color can win any statewide office. It, we, we won't we No. No, it's so do they have ballot
0: initiatives in the state of Alabama?
3: No. Well, they do. In fact, um, in fact, we just had one in 2012, which was a ballot initiative to remove. The apartheid language that still prohibits black and white kids from going to school together in Alabama, state constitution of Alabama still prohibits black and white children from going to school together. They tried to remove it in 2004, and the majority of people said, no, let's keep it in. They put it on the ballot in 2012, and even bigger majority said, let's keep it in. And it speaks to... The lack of shame. Why do you
0: think that is? It's because
3: people don't feel in any way implicated by that. They don't feel troubled by it. They don't feel ashamed of it. They don't feel like that it, it does anything uh, to cast a pall over who they are. And that absence of shame condemns they us. They want
0: to maintain something as ridiculous as let's leave language in our – and did anybody who was a leader, yeah. a political leader or, or activist there, who articulated in any way th- that defended why they needed to have that
3: in there? Yeah, they would say, if we take this out, there might be a right to equal education. And if there's a right to equal education, then our taxes taxes might go up. up. There's always an economic rationale to defend oppression. Always. Or both. Or both. But we can always come up with something that says, well, if we do this, it's going to be problematic for us.
0: Let me offer you my take, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. The one thing that we need in this country right now is we need for people like you to Hmm. run for office. Hmm. Because with real political power on the state level, on the federal level, I don't think you can get very much done comparatively. But you should consider that if you don't mind my saying so. No,
3: I don't. And I respect that perspective. I do. And I do take it to heart because I know that it's a product of a lot of careful thinking. And I agree with you that the political process has been so compromised by people who enter it for all these other reasons. My big question is... Has it been compromised in a way that even visionary people can't be visionary. You're going to do more good where you are. I mean, that's the, I, if I weren't a practicing an attorney with a forum that I can sometimes manage to accomplish real change— I don't think there's any choice that I'd have to try to figure out how to do that.
0: You don't have to answer this question, but I'm assuming it's public record. What's the budget of the organization down in Alabama? It's this year is four million dollars. So it's four million bucks, and you have to run around like a dervish all over the country giving speeches and raising
3: money yourself. That's right, and it's a lot of it's on you. Oh yeah, we don't have a development staff or anything like that. No, we, its a different model. We've just said you know we're not going to worry about it. We're going to hopefully get what we need, and we're going to keep doing what we want to do. It's not the most uh, you know financially uh, thoughtful way of doing at it, but we've been able to do it. We want to do. But yeah, it's a challenge. But I look at the work that we did on banning life without parole sentences for kids. I couldn't have done that as a politician. It doesn't matter what office I was holding. I could not have done There's it. things you couldn't even touch. It couldn't even touch. The death penalty is ultimately going to be resolved when we get the courts uh, to be so beat down by the inhumanity and the, and the errors and the and cruelty of it that they say no more. And so that's a forum that I continue to see opportunities for advancing these issues because it's about rights and protecting the rights of disfavored people is no longer something that I'm as optimistic about our political process being responsive to. My my friend who's in politics, he said that the the reality of the politician today is he says, yes, you have all these powerful Mm -hmm. tools and nowhere to plug them in. Yeah, exactly. There's no power source to power them. Yeah. I don't want to kind of give up on it because I think we still need good people to do it. But I I definitely want to find ways. Yeah, I am torn. But I definitely want to find ways to get out there. And we're going to keep doing that, you know. And uh, I'm excited about these projects. I think that we are going to push. I think we can reduce the prison population by half in the next 10 years if we push in the right way you know there are narratives we have to confront in Alabama both state and federal nationwide i think we can get to what's the key to that well i think it's to kind of declaring that the war on drugs was wrong right. which now people on the right and left are comfortable with what's doing. your drug policy well we think that we should just decriminalize these sentences that have put but people in no because i think that's a harder sell in too many places and we don't need to legalize to get people out of jails right. and prisons do you personally prison. think that certain drugs should be legal i don't really feel lsd I, cocaine i don't actually i'm 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 i see the consequences of drug addiction sure. and drug dependency in poor and minority right. communities. We shouldn't I don't be want that. It easier. For yeah, them, right? no, I don't really. I want people to not be drug dependent because right. your life is compromised through that stuff. Right. But more than that, I just want to get these people out of right. prison and not drug dependent because then they can be good workers and they can take advantage of whatever job programs we create, which you can't take advantage of if you're drug dependent, truthfully. And then you can become a good father and you can become a good husband or a good daughter and a good wife and a good child and a good parent. All these things that people can't be when their lives have been so destroyed by the distractions that you have to have to cope with the ugliness of life. And for me, that becomes uh, both a moral imperative but also a strategy for improving public safety and recovery for communities that have been ravaged by mm-hmm. so much uh, threat and menace. Uh, but I think we can do it that way, uh, reducing, uh, eliminating uh, people being sent to jails and prisons, and then just having some proportionate, rational sentencing. Right. It's crazy we what we're to, doing. We have, to, we
0: have to have a complete we do. reconstruction we do. of the sentencing structure. We do. We We do. Thank you for your time. You're very welcome. <laughs> Bryan Stevenson recently published Just Mercy, a memoir about his experiences... Fighting injustices in the American legal system. The work is stressful. Rosa Parks once personally warned Brian about exhaustion. To relax, he turns to his baby grand piano at home. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing.